Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, it says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. All of human history is racing. Towards that final destination, towards that epic, great event, the greatest event ever, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some suggest that Jesus must come because it's the only conclusion that makes sense according to the biblical revelation. And that's true, but it's not the whole truth. If you read carefully the New Testament, you discover that Jesus comes to defeat the false prophet and the Antichrist and to judge the world's nations that have rebelled against God, that stand in opposition to God and the things of God as they're assembled together on the plains of Megiddo in the place that has come to be known as Armageddon. Jesus will regather, he will regenerate, he will restore faithful Israel. But sadly and tragically, Jesus will judge and punish faithless Israel. Jesus comes and resurrects the Old Testament saints and those who have perished in the great tribulation. And at some point in the future, Jesus will invite men and women who know him, who love him, who embrace him to participate with him in judging the fallen angels, according to first Corinthians chapter six, verse three. So in this chapter, in Mark chapter 13, just days before his death and burial and resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Lord, Jesus will make two prophecies and then he will speak two parables. The first prophecy was in regards to the Jewish temple. The second prophecy was in regards to what's been called the great tribulation. In verse four, the disciples asked the Lord the question. It was Peter, James, John, Andrew. Verse four, when will these things be? Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus responds with you will witness false messiahs, verses four, five and six world wars in verses seven and eight. The persecution of the godly in verse seven, verse nine, verses 12 and 13, which includes political and religious persecutions. The universal preaching of the gospel in verse 10, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in verse 11. And then Jesus speaks of a series of events that will take place at the end of the age, the final 
final half of the tribulation, the desecration of the temple in verses 14 through 16, false rumors about the return of Jesus in verses 21, 22 and 23, the fearful, fatal, global phenomenon. Signs in the celestial heavens, which include the sun and the moon and the stars in verses 24 and 25. The literal, physical, bodily return of Jesus in verse 26. The gathering of the elect saints in verse 27. And so the servant returns after the tribulation. Look for yourself in verse 24, right at the beginning. It says, but, which is an adversative in relationship to all that you've read thus far. But in those days, after that tribulation, which tribulation? The one described in verses 4 through 23, the short list, epidemics, super volcanoes, earthquakes, severe weather, landslides, and no less than 12 names are given in the Bible to describe that period of time. Number one, it's called the day of the Lord in at least 20 places. It's called num- number two, the indignation in Isaiah 26, 20. Number three, it's called the day of God's vengeance in Isaiah 34, 8. Number Number four, it's called the time of Jacob's sorrow or trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse seven. And number number five, the overspreading of abominations in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27. It's called the time of trouble such as was never seen before or since in Daniel chapter 12, verse one. It's called the 70th week in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24. It's called the time of the end in Daniel chapter 12, verse nine. It's called the day of his wrath in Revelation six seventeen. It's called the hour of his judgment in Revelation chapter 14, verse seven. And it is called the tribulation. In Revelation and in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 29. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's parallel passage, in Matthew 24, 29, it says, Immediately after the distress, read, tribulation of those days. The the word translated tribulation is borrowed. It's a borrowed word from a Latin word, which is, Tribulum. It was a farmer's tool. It was used to separate the chaff from the fruit or the corn from the husk. In the Bible, it came to mean an instrument that was used to separate and it brought about affliction. It was also a burdening with anguish and trouble a binding. It came to mean something that would submit something else to extreme pressure and oppression. And so the Bible speaks about several reasons Why this period of pressure and oppression must befall the whole world. 
You are all familiar with the biblical principle that what a person sows, that also they will reap. And the tribulation exists in part to reap the harvest that has been sown by Satan and evil men. The principle is true in the individual's life and it is true in the life of a community and it is true in the life of a nation and it is true in the life of a civilization. But it's also true in the life of a planet. That stands in opposition to God and the things of God and the purposes of God and the plans of God. Think about the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13 verses 3 through 8 where remember the person comes and he sows the seed. The tribulation will happen to prove once and for all that the claims of Satan are not true. You see, human beings live In a world and they wonder what the world would be like if someone else was in control or if you yourself were in control. (laughs) There was an 80s song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And during the tribulation period, Satan will be allowed a relatively free, unhindered, Opportunity to implement his political and social and ideological and theological principles. What will human beings do when there's very few moral or spiritual restraints? You see, Satan will invite you into a world and into a civilization where there is sex on demand. It's available to all, where abortion is available to all, where same-sex marriage is available to all, where the state will make good its promise to provide you with everything. Wait a minute. Hold on a minute. That sounds very similar to the world in which we're headed. If we're not always already there a week ago, we had an election this week. We wake up and it's Amsterdam. We have drugs on demand and freedoms. But remember, it's a freedom not to love and serve the Lord, but to please yourself. In the tribulation period, millions will be killed in a genocidal policy for all who oppose and resist the Antichrist. The tribulation will serve as the instrument to punish the Gentile nations because it says in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The tribulation will punish the Gentiles. It will purge Israel and it will prepare the earth for the coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom and the Bible says that just like in the days of Noah, the earth will experience cosmic disturbances, global events. And by the way, in theology, there are four main views concerning the second coming of Christ. One is called dispensational premillennialism. Another is called historical premillennialism. Another is called amillennialism. Another is called postmillennialism. But do you know what all of them have in common? All of them believe, if you embrace historical biblical Christianity, all believe that Jesus will return physically. The issue isn't whether or not Jesus will come. The issue is when will Jesus return? 
Will he return after a seven year tribulation, but before the millennium, the historical or the dispensational premillennialist says yes. Will he do the rapture and the second coming of Christ occur at the same time? Well, according to the historical premillennialist, the answer is yes. According to the amillennialist, the answer is yes. According to the postmillennialist, the answer is yes. Will there be a great tribulation? According to the dispensational premillennialist, the answer is yes. According to the historical premillennialist, the answer is yes. According to the amillennialist and the postmillennialist, they believe that the tribulation occurs any time that Christians are persecuted or wars or disasters happen. They believe that tribulation is either a Jewish-Roman war or an ongoing conflict between good and evil. But I'm going to suggest to you, that only the premillennial dispensational position gives us a view where the scriptures make sense. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus will first come for his saints and then he will come with the saints, according to First Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. Non-dispensationalists merge these two events into one great event. You might think 1 Thessalonians 4.13 plus Mark 13 plus Luke 21 equals the second coming. But I don't believe that. Not even for a moment. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Why? Because the Bible teaches that it takes place after the tribulation. That Jesus comes for his saints and then with the saints. The church isn't appointed to wrath, it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Believers will not be overtaken by that day, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 9. The church of Philadelphia was promised to be kept from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world, according to Revelation chapter 3, verse 13 or 10. The word church in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 of Revelation occurs some 19 times. After that, it disappears and it doesn't reappear until Revelation chapter 22. The pre-tribulation view holds that the church, church and Israel are distinct in their role and there are separate plans and promises yet to be fulfilled. Yet both have a single savior. Both are required to submit to that savior. In Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation is a time of purging and restoration for Israel, not for the church. And so this view retains the idea that Jesus could come back at any moment. That's called imminence. And, and that's what the theologians call it. It is the idea that even as we are speaking, Jesus could appear. Jesus could come. Christians could disappear. There's a very famous uh, theologian and Bible teacher named John Walvoord who used to teach that he wouldn't buy green bananas. Because he didn't want to waste money. Just in case. This is the view that retains a high view of God's character in punishing the wicked and delivering the righteous. Some suggest that the weakness of the view is that it's recent in its formulation and that it splits the coming of Christ into two distinct events, the rapture and the second coming. But I'll have more to say about that on Wednesday when I begin to go over the wars that lead up to the second coming. 
But we're going to go return to our text. Look at the end of verse 24. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers of heaven will be shaken. So how are we to think about this celestial phenomenon? How are we to think about what we just read? Is this poetic language? Is it figurative language? Is it metaphorical language or is it literal language? In ancient times, those who insisted that it was poetic or figurative, they saw in the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light a picture of what would descend upon Jerusalem as the Shekinah glory left the Temple Mount. The sacrifice is going to cease. The ceremonial law is going to be done away with. God is departed. The law is now over with. Some suggest that it might refer to a solar eclipse. The ancients were clearly aware of the movement of the celestial bodies. But in Isaiah 13.10, we have a clue. Because this was written 600 years before Jesus is speaking. In Isaiah 13.10, we read, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will cause its light to shine. Repeated associations are made with these astonishing cosmic astronomical phenomenon in Isaiah 24:23 in Ezekiel 32:7 in Joel chapter 2 verse 10 and of course in Luke chapter 21 verse 25 where we read and there will be signs in the moon in the sun in the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity that expression Distress is tribulation. Perplexity is a Greek word which means no way out. That the problems will be so severe and the difficulty so profound that the collective understanding of all of the peoples on the planet will not be able to cope with what's happening. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What are we talking about? Signs in the heavens. Earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. What in the world could cause that kind of overarching global catastrophe for the sun to be darkened, the moon to be blotted out? We know in the past something as simple as an eclipse might cause it. We also know that a meteoritic impact could cause it. We know that atmospheric pollution could cause it. We know that nuclear fallout could cause it. We also know that a global realignment, if a foreign body hit our earth in some way, remember it's spinning at the equator at a thousand miles an hour. It's like a top that's rotating and it would take an an enormous amount of energy. To cause that to tip slightly or even dramatically. In the book of Revelation between the sixth and the seventh seals, the winds of heaven are held back. In Revelation chapter seven, verse one, it says, and these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds 
that the wind would not blow on the earth. It wouldn't touch the sea nor any tree. And during the fourth vile judgment, immense solar heat explodes from the surface of the sun. And the angel poured out his vial upon the sun and power, it says, was given to scorch men with fire. If there was a solar flare that burst out with energy, it could come and it could envelop our atmosphere. I'm going to suggest to you that during the tribulation, the sun will boil away vast amounts of our ocean water. This vast amount of ocean water will go up into the upper atmosphere. However, because of the absence of wind, it will prohibit or inhibit the formation of clouds, making it impossible for rain to fall. And there's going to be a condition, almost a pre-flood like condition that might envelop and enshroud the earth in this impenetrable darkness. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 16, 18, and again in verse 20, it says, There was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, and every island fled away. The mountains were not found. What I'm going to suggest to you is that the world's greatest earthquake might include a complete flip of the earth's axis. Now, we know that the earth's magnetosphere and the pole of the uh, the magnetic pole can shift and has shifted from north to south and from south to north. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's some sort of global event where perhaps the North Pole becomes the South Pole. Mountains fill up with deep canyons, creating a geography similar to the time before the Great Flood. A global flipping of the planet would create an extinction event where all life on the planet would cease. So I don't think that that's what's going to happen. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that God himself might be creating the conditions on the planet Earth that closely resembled what the Earth was like. When a garden was made and Adam and Eve were placed in that garden. What does this mean? What does this suggest? I'm going to suggest to you that part of the purpose of this judgment, it's going to be a refabricating in part of the surface of the planet to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And I'm going to suggest that you do something else, that you reread the passage. What does the passage say and mean? What's the minimum that it's saying and meaning? Terrifying signs in the sky, utter chaos in the world, instability of nature. The Bible seems to agree that there's climate change that is so severe and this ever increasing instability of nature will be unsustainable. The thing that people want to argue about amongst themselves is, well, is this instability man-made? Really? Is that the conversation that you want to have as we're facing global annihilation? Well, it depends on 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 how you define, is this instability man-made? Let me ask you a question. Is sin man-made? This is an easy question. And you go to this church, you should know the answer to this. Is sin man-made? 
is rebellion man-made. Is opposition to God man-made. So, here's the question, Bible students. The Bible says, should you expect increased lawlessness? Yes. Increased violence? Yes. According to Matthew 24, 12, increased immorality. According to Matthew 24, 37, in the future, some things are going to go up and some things are going to go down. Some things are going to increase in value and some things are going to have no value at all. Here's what the Bible says. These are the things guaranteed to increase. Materialism. Hedonism will increase. Humanism will increase. Depraved entertainment will increase. Calling evil good and good evil will increase. Increased usage of mind-altering, personality-altering drugs. Increased blasphemy. Increased despair. Signs in the heavens. Increased knowledge, according to Daniel 12.4. Increased travel, Daniel 12.4. An explosion of cults, a proliferation of false leaders, increased apostasy in the church, increased attacks on Jesus, increased attacks on the Bible, increased persecution of saints, increased fascination with the occult and the spirit world, increased weapons of mass destruction, increased technology, the eventual unification of Europe. A push for global government, a continuing hatred and a commitment to exterminate Israel, a Russian threat to Israel, an Arab threat to Israel, a denial of the second coming of Jesus, a denial that this world was Created by God, an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit, the continued translation of the Bible, the preaching of the gospel in the entire world, a revival of biblical prophecy, a growing number of believers in China, in Africa, in India, in South America. And do you realize, do you realize that if you take the time of the 7th century when Islam started up until the 19th century, more people have been reached for Christ in the Muslim community in the last 100 years than in the previous thousand years combined. Do you understand what's happening? And then now read verse 26. Then, then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. My friend Raul Reese, he loves this passage. I love to hear him teach it. He goes... And then you will see Jesus coming with great power and great glory. I go, Raul, you you need to reread the passage. It says with great power and glory. Oh, never mind. Here, I want you to think about this for just a moment. All of human history coalesces. The Lord Jesus came the first time in humility In obscurity, he came to the poorest province in the Roman Empire, to the poorest place in the poorest province. And now Jesus comes with the clouds, with an angelic escort. 
with myriads of saints in the last couple of months, many of the, the, the candidates have, have come to the front range. And some of you got an opportunity to see when the president comes, there is this gigantic entourage. There is the Secret Service. There's the FBI. There's, there's um, motorcycle escorts. There's motorcades. In other words, people converge. And there is this incredible entourage that takes place as the, as the, as the president is transported from one place to another. But all of that pales by comparison to this incredible entourage that comes with Jesus. Arno Gabelain referred to his longing for Jesus' second coming. He called it the homesickness of a new life. I like that. Someone else put it this way. Blessed are the homesick, for they shall be called home. Frederick Farrar was a personal friend of Queen Victoria of England. And on one occasion, he told of a conversation that he had with Her Majesty after she had heard one of her chaplains preach on the second coming of Jesus. She said, oh, Dean Farrar, how I wish that the Lord would come during my lifetime. And when he asked why she desired this, her countenance brightened and with deep emotion, she replied, Because I would love to lay my crown at his blessed feet in reverent adoration. But that won't be the way it is when Jesus really comes. The kings of the earth will oppose him and resist him and deny him. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, it says the the Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with mighty angels. In Revelation 1, 7, it says, behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him. In Revelation 19, 11, it says, and I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he that sat on it was called faithful and true. And the Bible describes this event as the revelation of his great glory. Those are the exact words used in Daniel chapter. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus comes and he will come and he will establish his rule. And I believe that the Bible teaches that when Jesus returns, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. This will cause an earthquake, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 through 8. It will split in half and the north will go further north and the south will go further south. As a matter of fact, in both the Old and the New Testaments, there are so many references to the coming of Jesus. There are 1,845 references to the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. A total of 17 Old Testament books make the coming of the Messiah its central theme. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. One out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament refer to the event the four that don't three are single chapter books one the other is the book of Galatians which implies the second coming of Jesus for every prophecy of the first coming of Jesus there are eight prophecies for the second coming of Jesus 
Because of that, C.S. Lewis wrote, It seems to me impossible to retain in any recognizable form our belief in the divinity of Christ and the truth of the Christian revelation while abandoning or even persistently neglecting the promised and threatened return of Christ. A promise for those who love his appearing. A threat for those who don't. And look what it says in verse 27. And then he will send his angels. And he will gather together his elect from the four winds. From the farthest point of earth to the farthest part part of heaven. Jesus dispatches his angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the planet earth. From the farthest part of heaven. By the way, this is the third reference to the elect in this context. First time, verse 20. Second time, verse 22. Now again, verse 27. Who are these people? This is the gathering of the good fish into the containers in Matthew 13:48. This is the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25:31. This is the wedding feast in which the prepared virgins are ready to enter in Matthew 25 verses 1 through 13. And so the angels go and they swoop over the entire surface of the planet and they search every nook and cranny. When I was a young Man, my father would travel frequently. And when he would come home, I'd say, Dad, where have you been? And he would say, Gina, I've been from Maine to Spain. He would say, I've been from China to Colombia. It was his way of saying, I have been everywhere. The Greek, the Greek is very brief here. From the tip of the earth, that's what it says, to the tip of heaven. From the tip of the earth to the tip of heaven. The precise phrase appears nowhere else in the Greek New Testament or the Old Testament. One Bible teacher says it simply means no place left uncovered. No place overlooked. When Jesus comes, no saint will be in a position where he or she can't be found. The elect include saints, not the New Orleans style. The Jews, the Gentiles who have put their faith in him during this tribulation. Some suggest it includes the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 and in verse 13, the resurrection of all of the martyred for their faith during the tribulation. They are gathered into a literal millennial kingdom based on David's promise that his seed would occupy the throne forever. The elect are those who are described by God Justified, Romans 8.33. They're called holy and beloved in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. This week I read an interesting story written by missionary Gregory Fisher. We're all familiar with the passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 where Paul writes of the blessed hope, the comfort and encouragement concerning the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus. And in that passage, Paul writes in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Fisher writes, What will he say? When he shouts, 
The question took me by surprise. I had already found that West African Bible college students can ask some of the most penetrating questions about the minute details of Scripture. Reverend, I would like to know what that command will be. Reverend, ah, First Thessalonians 4.16 says that Christ will descend from heaven with a loud command. I wanted to leave the question unanswered. To tell him that we must not go past what the scripture has revealed. But my mind wandered to an encounter I had earlier in the day with a refugee from the Liberian Civil War. The man, a high school principal, told me how he was apprehended by a two-man death squad. And after several hours of terror, as the men described how they would torture and kill him, he narrowly escaped. And after hiding in the bush for two days, he was able to find his family and escape to a neighboring country. The escape cost him dearly. Two of his children lost their lives. The stark cruelty unleashed on an unsuspecting, undeserving population touched me deeply. I also saw flashbacks of the beggars that I pass each morning on my way to the office. Every day I see how poverty destroys dignity, robs men of the best of what it means to be human, and sometimes substitutes the worst of what it means to be an animal. I'm haunted by the vacant eyes of the people who have lost all hope. Reverend, you have not given me an answer. What will he say? The question hadn't gone away. Enough, I said. He will shout, Enough! What do you mean, enough? Enough suffering. Enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough time, enough. I think I would add enough sin, enough rebellion. Enough disobedience. Enough unrighteous rule. It's time for justice. You see, the coming of Jesus isn't simply the way that it must end. It's the way that it's always had to end from the moment that human beings sinned and were exiled from a garden. It was the only way that it could end for a planet that rebelled against God and needed a way back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we know that. That much of the world is rushing far, far, far from you. And only a handful of people are rushing towards you. No wonder the Bible says that. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few there are who find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go that way. But Heavenly Father, I pray for that man or that woman who's had enough of rebellion and enough of disobedience and enough of sin and enough of running away from God. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause him or her to examine their art heart and say, I want life instead of death and I want forgiveness instead of guilt and I want hope instead of fear. Heavenly Father, I pray that that man, that woman would cry out to you that they would see their sin and their need for a savior. Lord, I pray that they would be found among those who name the name of Jesus whose hearts have been cleansed and whose future has been secured. Lord, I pray that even now they would in their heart cry out to you and believe you to forgive their sin and to impart to them everlasting life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.